so therefore I, I didn't like it as much <laughs> as yeah. Barbie Girl and Dr. Jones. What the fuck did I miss? Aqua Chats. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 251 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and if you, like me, woke up with a pressing need to discover whatever happened to polo fruits, <laughs> you'll perhaps be delighted to discover you can still buy them from niche internet websites. Oh, I used to like a polo fruit. Really? Yeah. What is this? Did you not? Do you not remember polo fruits? I'm sorry, I've just turned into Peter K. Do you remember <laughs> polo fruits? Uh, I do Roller remember cola. them. But I found them thoroughly underwhelming. You found them thoroughly underwhelming. Yeah. Oh, they were such a treat if we got a roll of polo fruits. Yeah, I have to say, as someone who's nan like had a bag that mostly contained things like fisherman's friends <laughs> and you know if you got a polo out of her you felt like you had a treat if you got a polo fruit out of her it was like christmas i feel yeah. like we had the same well you called a nan so grand yeah it was definitely a grandma treat if we got a polo mint always very excited but if we got a polo fruit happy days big bonanza time yeah, if we found anything that emerged from that handbag that didn't have Jesus's face on it, it was quite exciting, <laughs> to be honest. Same, we had a lot of Jesus yeah. accoutrements in my grandma's yeah. bedroom, along with the garden gnomes. It was a very weird experience. So, I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I didn't get an emergency alarm. Are you on three? I am on three, yeah, yeah which seems to explain it. I don't know if it excuses it, but it seems to explain it. I realised about four o'clock that... I hadn't had it because I was listening to a podcast with me earphones in and I was doing some housework and I realised I hadn't had it. And I sent a message to my friend's WhatsApp group and said, you know, I didn't get one. So if the world ever does end, can you do me a favour and (laughs) find find a minute, just send me a text message so that I don't die doing the washing up? Because that would just be so disappointing for me. And they said, yes, they would, but then pointed out, you know, I'm on three. I probably wouldn't get that either. (laughs) Yeah. I was in a Tesco Express and it went off and I thought, oh, it's the emergency alarm. And obviously you could hear it on everyone's phone. The amount of people who were full on panicking. I found it quite a stressful experience because I was with friends. So about four phones went off at the same time. And A, I find it really creepy that they can make your phone make a noise in such a way. And B, even though I knew what it was, it did make me feel a bit on edge. That's what I guess that's what an emergency should do, Jen. It well, should yes. make you feel a bit on edge. <laughs> yeah. I'd like Result. to know if there was a massive spike in calls to the emergency services. I bet there were. Do you think? Well, not from three customers. <laughs> there wouldn't have been. Ten million people didn't know anything was going on. As I went to bed last night, I thought this better not fucking arrive like really, really late during the night because that will shit me up. Why didn't three customers get it? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I mean, it was a yeah. test, I suppose. So uh, a test to decide to wire this shit out. Who knows? Either that or they've just decided to get rid of, if we're going to lose some of the population, the easiest way to do it is by, <laughs> t- by like, phone provider. Let's just take one whole network out. If yeah. there's a real one, Hannah, I'll let you know. Because, you know, that precious 10 seconds where you can stop washing up and start wanking. I don't want you to go washing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? It did make me think about, like, if I had three minutes, what I would do. And I thought, well, I mean, obviously, I'd probably wouldn't be able to get on the phone to anyone. So I'd just sort of gather the cats 
and put on some Johnny Cash. Probably the man comes around really loudly and then just flick through my phone at photographs. And then I thought, all my photographs are actually of my cats. <laughs> so that would be completely <laughs> pointless. They're either of my cats or they're of like tweets that have annoyed me that I've screen capped. <laughs> so what a miserable last minutes that would be. So then I thought, I just drink all the whiskey. The point of this alert is not so that they can tell us we're all going to die in three minutes. The point of the alert is to get us to a place of safety, surely. There's not much point in an alert if, if you know, the outcome is a foregone conclusion, surely. No, we've seen Armageddon, we've seen Deep yeah. Impact, you know. I don't think they bother telling us. I think they just let it happen. We might get to the stage where no one would let Britain happen, to be honest. I wonder if we're now going to get like spam ones of these, like we get spam ones of everything else. And I suddenly look out the window and I just see my neighbours like going wild, running around in the kitchen. <laughs> and they'll, they'll have had a warning for no reason. Well, guys, in better news, I'm Jen Offord. And yesterday I drove to Clacton and back. Oh, yeah. 42 wow. miles per hour. The back is the better news. The Clacton yeah. there, not great news. I had a lovely time. I got up to fourth gear, 42 miles per hour. Felt like a girl of 35. Lovely times. Fourth gear? Yeah, fourth gear, Hannah. You could have That's totally right. gone up to fifth Did, at 42. I was going to say, I think you could have gone up to fifth, really. This is what my point. driving instructor instructed, so <laughs> that's what I did. I think he's playing it safe. I thought, how old is the car she's <laughs> <laughs> it's only got four gears. Has it got like a little pulley out clutch when you start? <laughs> start it up. I remember those. Oh, you're such a whippersnapper. You do remember or you don't remember? I do remember, just about. I think I knew one person who had a car like that. I mean, if you had an old car when we were younger, then like my sister drove a mini, it had a choke. I used to go and start the car uh, before school if my mum was dropping us off. If it was our turn to give people a lift and she could manage it, I used to go and have to do the choke and, and do all that so that it would like have defrosted before we all got in it. Because, you know, the north, even in July, really fucking cold. <laughs> does it have windscreen wipers, the car you're learning in, Jen? Yes, Hannah. Of course it does. <laughs> do you have to put your arm out the window? I didn't say it only had four gears. It definitely has five. I just didn't use it. <laughs> just never used it. Just never used it. That's <laughs> never all. ever. Fifth gear's for special gen and no other occasions. I don't wanna I don't wanna brag, but our car's got six gears. What? My god. I know. I know. I didn't even know that was a does, thing, to does be honest. Sixth gear make you go up. <laughs> yeah, it's the ejector seat. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I chat to Vicky Pepperdine. I know. I was excited. About playing Princess Anne in the Windsors and a lot more besides. The Windsors, FYI, is back on Channel 4 for a coronation special on Sunday at 9pm. I chat to Kelly Gordon, executive lead for Netball England's Netball Her, see what they did there, campaign, Mm -hmm. about sport for life and the barriers women face when it comes to sports participation. And if only I could turn back time in this week's Rated or Dated, we watch 1998's Sliding Doors. But first, facts, feelings and fish. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Definitely not the first draft of our thoughts on the news. (laughs) Wowzers. The Labour Party in trouble again. They are, yeah. Diane Abbott suspended. I mean, it doesn't look good. But what also doesn't look good is that a lot of people with lots of, you know, England flags are using it as an excuse to abuse her. 
when I'm pretty sure they don't really care about Roma rights or Jewish rights, no Jewish rights at all. So yeah, just a pretty unedifying situation all around, really. Absolutely. But you know, at least she was thinking of the gingers. So just shows how hard Prince Harry's life really is, right? <laughs> oh. Mickey, I thought we'd hop in the car, hit the M6, and take a little tour of the current drama taking place north of the border. Road trip, road trip, road trip. <laughs> It might take a while. In fact, if anyone's got a motorhome they're not using, please do get in touch. Mm -hmm. Let everyone know about those motorhomes, people. (laughs) Rumours continue to spread that former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon will be the next person to be arrested in the investigation into the finances of the SNP. Just to be clear, we don't trade in rumours at Standard Issue. No, thank you. But also, Scottish law is pretty tight on what can and can't be reported. So only the facts from us here today. I don't want to end up in court fighting a case I can't win. I'm not Joe Lyon Morn. <laughs> oh, hang on. Oh, I've just heard a whole load of foxes breathe a big sigh of relief there, Hannah. <laughs> so here goes. Earlier this month, Sturgeon pledged to, quote, fully cooperate with police after the arrest of her husband, Peter Murrell, the SNP's former chief executive. According to police in Scotland, Murrell was arrested as a suspect at the couple's Glasgow home and taken in for questioning, quote, in connection with the ongoing investigation into the funding and finances of the Scottish National Party. He was later released without charge, with police adding that a report was being prepared for the Crown Office, the country's prosecution service. I don't think that anybody should read anything into that statement either way. Mm -hmm. The arrest was part of the months-long inquiry and was followed last week by that of Treasurer Colin Beattie, who was also released without charge pending further investigations. Beattie resigned, having served as the SNP's Treasurer for 16 years, before being defeated in an internal election by Douglas Chapman in 2020. Beattie returned to the role when Chapman resigned after just a year, saying, quote, he had not received the support or financial information that was needed to carry out his duties as treasurer. And imagine financial information is quite important. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it does make that job much easier, Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Treasurer. Oh, I'm not dealing with the money. Okay, great. According to the BBC, the SNP raised 666,000, I know, (laughs) £953. If only they got that extra £47, I wouldn't have been able to make that joke. Through referendum-related appeals between 2017 and 2020, with a pledge to spend these funds on the independence campaign. Questions were raised after accounts showed there was just under £97,000 in the bank at the end of 2019 and total net assets of about £272,000. Last year, it emerged that Murrell had given a loan of more than £100,000 to the SNP to help it out with a cash flow issue after the last election. Half of the money had been repaid by October of that year. The party also needs to find new auditors after its previous firm, Johnston Carmichael, quit last September, information that only became public very recently. There's also the question of a luxury motorhome, which was seized by police from outside a property in Dunfermline, believed to be the home of Murrell's mother, where it is alleged to have been parked since January 2021. Has she been on bullseye recently? (laughs) (laughs) All of which meant the tenure of Hamza Yousaf, the First Minister, 
has not got off to the best start. No. <laughs> and to be clear, his name is Hamza Yousaf, not Mohammed or whatever one member of the Shadow Cabinet called him last week. Yousaf, who also had to temporarily fill the role of treasurer while there was a replacement sort, said in Holyrood, all this was, quote, not ideal. <laughs> But he added he did not believe the party was operating in a criminal way. I mean, I'd hope that he'd know. But asked when he became aware the motorhome was an SNP asset. And to be clear, I think that means asset as in something something they own rather than, you know, expiring. We could use this. The first minister said, quote, shortly after I became the leader of the party, maybe it's like the Scottish equivalent of the nuclear codes. <laughs> Asked whether it was wrong of Sturgeon not to reveal to SNP leadership candidates the lack of auditors, Yousaf said, frankly, it would have been helpful to know beforehand. <laughs> I mean, no shit. Oh, no shit, Yousaf. He's got a hard time ahead of him, hasn't he? Doesn't seem like a fun job, does it? Apart from, obviously, the holidays in that luxury motorhome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, talking of ongoing clusterfucks of incompetence and corruption, <laughs> only the facts here. This June the 14th, it will be six years since a high-rise fire broke out in the 24-storey Grenfell Tower block in North Kensington, killing 72 people and injuring more than 70 others. The inquiry into the tragedy closed last year and the awaited final report, likely to run to thousands of pages, is yet to be published, meaning criminal prosecutions in connection with the fire may not begin until next year. So Grenfell is in and out of the news these days, in the news most recently because it's just been reported that more than 900 people affected by the Grenfell Tower fire will share a settlement of £150 million. That settlement, by the way doesn't include all victims of the fire and it has no impact upon the ongoing public inquiry or the ongoing criminal investigation. Why doesn't it include all the victims? They didn't all get behind it. Oh, okay. And also, I've got to say, like, £150 million obviously sounds like a lot of money. It, I mean, it doesn't just sound like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But when you divide it by 900, and I'm pretty sure that the maths isn't going to be as simple as that, it's £166,000, which... Right. Again, isn't I'm not it's not to be sniffed at, but it's it's not it's not huge reparation, is it? I don't think. Certainly not gonna buy you a home in London. Or your brother back or any of that. Yeah. Yeah, so Grenfell is in and out of the news, but it's no longer front page news. And you know, a journalist, I realise there's only so much room on the front page for a lot of news that is happening. But still it was such a big thing. Filmmaker Steve McQueen's Grenfell is a 24-minute unwavering gaze at the Blackened Tower block, filmed in a single shot six months after the tragedy, and it's being hailed as a critical exercise in remembrance. It's currently at the Serpentine until May the 10th, and it's free to visit, but you do need to book ahead. And it's, it's, kind of, it's good that it's there, because tragedies like Grenfell are often forgotten unless care is taken to remember them, fading from the public memory even before justice has been served. And McQueen's film isn't the only new work about Grenfell. The BBC and the National Theatre are currently facing rising hostility over two high-profile productions about the disaster, with survivors and bereaved family members urging both institutions to drop their plans. 
There's understandable concern, I think it's understandable, that the reenactment of Grenfell as a cultural slash social value will mean it becomes detached from the needs of those it affected the most. Both the verbatim play and the planned TV drama are to be based on lengthy periods of research conducted locally and will be constructed from the testimony of many of those closest to the tragedy. But feelings remain really raw around the ownership of the truth about the fire and there is a high level of suspicion, again I think quite understandable, about even well-intended interventions from national institutions. And this has been revealed in the strength of local opposition to the national and the BBC's plans. Who gives them permission to do these things and then tell us after? asks Mariam Adam, who escaped from the burning tower while three months pregnant. Before you do this sort of thing, you should get our permission because this is our pain, our story. It's an excellent question, I think Mariam asks. Where is the line between political art and voyeuristic entertainment and who gets to draw it? Um, yeah, I mean, doesn't seem like a question that I would be able to provide an answer to. It seems like it needs the brightest minds and all of that. Mm. I mean, I'm pretty sure if they get, they've got a verbatim play that some people have spoken to them. Yes. So clearly some people are behind it. And you tend to find with tragedies that that's the problem. Even the people affected by it can't decide amongst themselves which what's the correct answer. So I, I think it really depends what the outcome of it is and of course you don't know the outcome until it's done exactly we, we've not seen it to know how they're going to represent it but six years isn't isn't that long and obviously the stuff that is still ongoing there aren't answers so i know you enjoyed probably isn't the the right word you really rated the series Anne, which is about hillsborough mm. right but that's yeah. like 30 odd years after the event yeah this is six years and the dust has oh no settled. i mean i get that mm. I, I do get that but equally Going back to what you said about, I'm not defending this at all. I'm still manning why there would, mm -hmm. the, the case behind doing it, is that it does drip in and out of the news. And you do find, sadly, that people will respond more to Maxine Peak playing a victim or the mother of a victim than they would, you know, a, a woman that they don't know. Yeah. So there is something to be said for keeping, you know, in the same way that, we discussed this when we were talking about Welcome to Sarajevo. People respond to a journalist in danger in a different way than they do to a person who's actually living there through it. That's a really interesting example to bring up, actually, Hannah, because I was thinking about this and I, I agree with you and I am definitely not one of the brightest minds, right? So I, I don't really know where I come down on this and I, I wasn't immediately impacted in, in any way. I'm very lucky in that sense. But that was filmed really recently after... Well, the fighting yeah. was still happening, wasn't it? I think it was started, the film started like a week after the ceasefire or something. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think it is, it's a real conundrum. My, my heart would always say, I think we should be led by the people it affects the most. Yeah. Although the extent of that does not merely encompass the people that lived in that building. It will also encompass, say, for example, members of the emergency services. So perhaps there's a way of telling the story from their perspective that doesn't, you know, undermine the victim's narrative yeah yeah you're right it'll be interesting to see what happens a lot of the people on the ground are saying that they're going to block the bbc from filming that like tensions and emotions are really high there so it'll be interesting to see how it pans out and whether the bbc deciding to make a drama instead of like a documentary is a good idea i don't know 
I do say of the two of them, I think the thing that has more chance of working is a verbatim play, but that could just be because I fucking love verbatim plays. Me too, Hannah. Me too. I think they're amazing. Any other thorny Gordian knot type issues people would like to hear us discuss in (laughs) under three minutes? Please let us know. I think we we sorted that one out, right? It's all done. It's all done and dusted. You can come to us with any of your problems. Hannah, would you like some good news? I bloody would. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the wildlife and I'm currently on the wait list for some badger snack shoes. <laughs> that video, I hope you've all seen it. Hannah and our friend Sam sent it to me of a man having his shoes eaten by a badger. He runs away. I'd be like, look, there's another one, mate. Do I go on this one? <laughs> Lovely stuff. But obviously, every time I talk about wildlife programs for, say, outside the box... Love you, David, if you're listening. Love you so much. Or in last week's mail out. Also, why aren't you listening to Outside the Box? I'd let him off. He's probably trying to cram a lot of stuff in right now. There's a real hefty dollop of bad and sad news because we're, well, we're fucking it right up. Uh, That remains true. I know this is the good news section, but that does remain true. Nowhere more so than in our oceans. But there is some joyous news. That's right. Not just good news, Hannah. Joyous (laughs) news this week. I can't believe I take a week off from good news (laughs) and you've already like just completely up the ante. Yeah, Uh, this is the joyous news section. Uh, Come on, pull your finger out. Scientists have discovered a pristine deep sea coral reef, quote, teeming with life in waters off Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. How do we get there and fuck it up? <laughs> I'm not telling you because you've done so much damage. No, not, not yeah. you, not you specifically. They are there and I am a bit like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be there. I mean, I'm glad you found it, but get out. Anyway, this has raised hope that healthy reefs can still thrive at a time when coral is in crisis due to record sea surface temperatures and ocean acidification. Marine biologist Dr. Michelle Taylor from the University of Essex in England was part of the team that found the reefs, and they are the first discovered in the Galapagos Marine Reserve since its creation in 1998. And she said they are pristine and teeming with life. Pink octopus, batfish... Don't know what the fuck one of them is. They were my words, not hers. I'm sure she knows. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Michelle. Uh, wait, where's in your mouth? Are batfish like Batman for fish? I hope so. Like they just like <laughs> let out, you know, like in Bojack Horseman when they're all underwater, they let out a little bubble yeah. with a, a batfish symbol in it, and it comes yeah. to their rescue. Just to reiterate again, this is not Michelle speaking. <laughs> Back to Michelle. Squat lobsters. Oh, how rude. <laughs> <laughs> and an array of deep sea fish, sharks and rays, she said. She said that bit. These newly discovered reefs are potentially of global significance, sites which we can monitor over time to see how pristine habitats evolve with our current climate crisis and how batfish respond to other fish in danger. <laughs> yes. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we profess to help women by reducing them to stereotypes. Yay! And so to Canada, where a report released at the end of March found that femicide is increasing rapidly in the country. Figures from the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability suggested one woman or girl is killed by violence every 48 hours. That's actually higher than the UK, where a woman or girl is killed every three days. And while it's obviously not a competition, 
It's worth saying that Canada has a population of just 38.5 million compared to 67.5 million here. So, if it were a competition, Canada would be winning or losing, depending on how you look at it. We look at it as losing. Definitely look at it as losing. So, great news then, that Canadian politicians are doing something to raise awareness of the issue. Yes. And that is, checks notes, walking around in pink high heels. Sorry, what? Problem solved. Thanks, lads. Mm -hmm. Let's all go back to living our lives free of fear. Mm, I'm going to need more information, Hannah. Minister of Transport Omar Al-Gabra took some Twitter heat last week when he posted a video on social media of several male Canadian politicians having a right laugh, walking around a meeting room wearing pink stilettos. It was part of Hope in High Heels, an event organised by Horton's Women's Place, which is a woman's shelter in Ontario. Now, it's worth saying that a lot of the criticism came from places like Fox News, who objected to the wokeness of men in heels. Oh, yeah, that's the issue. Because as we all know, men shouldn't wear high heels because they are lady shoes, mm. which is exactly the sort of mindset that reinforces society where male violence can flourish. And I'm not here for any of that nonsense. And I'm with you. But isn't that exactly what Al Gabra's video does itself? What in fuck's name? Has a group of men tittering at themselves, tarting around on stilettos, got to do with the death of three women a week? Al Gabra tried to explain, quote, Violence against women is still prevalent in our society. Hope in Heels is an event that spreads awareness on violence against women while encouraging men and boys to be part of the solution. We wore their signature pink heels in support to this important cause. Now that I have your attention... Violence against women comes in all forms, not just physical. Men, starting with me, need to be aware of the consequences of our actions and words and do better to create space for women around us. Interesting that he's largely just talking to men directly yeah, there. But anyway, convinced? Yeah, I'm not. No. I mean, can you imagine, Mick, Standard Issue decides to raise awareness of violence against women and I come into the meeting pitching this. Uh, since I've never worn a pair of stilettos in my life, how about I record a video of myself wearing them? Can you imagine the response I'd get on Twitter? Because I'm a woman, so solving violence against women is seen as my job, right? Yeah, I mean, I will take that video for personal use, though, just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially galling that these guys are politicians, the sort of people with the power to actually do something useful when it comes to making the sort of societal changes that will tackle the growing problem of violence against women. Absolutely. But let's just revisit the statement our Gabra made. Quote, men, starting with me, need to be aware of the consequences of our actions and words and do better to create space for women around us. Here's the consequences of your actions, mate. You've made this all look like a bit of a lark. You've suggested that there's something other about a man wearing heels. And you've done precisely fuck all to tackle the issue of violence against women. In your own words, do better. Yes, Hannah. Yes, Hannah. Hoping heels, fucked off in comfortable shoes. That's what I am. <laughs> Hi, Hannah here. I'm genuinely thrilled to say welcome to Standard Issue, Vicky Pepperdine. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Great pleasure. Let's start with The Windsors, which is about to return to our screens with you starring again as Princess Anne. I saw a preview of it yesterday and you'd enough make me laugh in it. It looks like an absolute ball to make. It absolutely is. I mean, I know people all the time say, oh, we're filming fun. And quite a lot of the time you sort of have to lie and say, <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. But genuinely, this is the best job. And I always look forward to doing it. I love all the people. They're all just brilliant and funny and fun. And yeah, it's it's kind of a dream job for me, really. And I get to wear the ridiculous wig and false teeth and um, <laughs> not have to ever worry about whether I look ugly or not, because I have to. <laughs> it is a ridiculous wig, but that just adds to the beauty of it, I think. It does. The makeup team are brilliant. I mean, they're all just fantastic. So it makes it just such a lovely experience, you know, really great. How did you decide how you were going to play Princess Anne? Because she's such an interesting character. And I, I think know. she sort of falls with you somewhere between the public perception of her and then Miss Trunchbull. That's it. The very first one that we did, she was sort of a Miss Havisham sort of figure. She, I don't think Anne was in the first series. But anyway, she was always a sort of a bit of a kind of odd presence. And so a lot of it is in the writing. So mm. it's kind of, you know, it's brilliantly written. It's really funny. So it's a sort of gift of, of writing, really, to all the performers, I think. Everyone would agree with that. And so you're sort of, you know, there are certain decisions that kind of are made for you. <laughs> and then there's just the fun to be had with your fellow actors and what people offer you and what you offer back. And just sort of anything goes really on the day. I mean, you know, quite often people will throw something in and then you'll have to do it again because actually that didn't work or, you know, whatever. But on the whole, it's brilliantly written. Everyone's characters are really well defined and it's just a fun fun thing to do what do you make of princess Anne in general in the real world yeah. or in the crown um, no, <laughs> I... <laughs> well quite so I have this really weird thing about princess Anne my mum used to live quite near somewhere in Gloucestershire my mum used to see her sort of driving around and my mum used to love princess Anne so she's wonderful she she works the hardest of all of them she'd say her and the queen are the only ones that do any work which I think is kind of probably true <laughs> And I love the fact that she keeps all her outfits. So I, I went to the hairdresser not that long ago. They gave me a magazine to read and I opened it up and there was a big spread of Princess Anne. It said, Anne clad in actually quite a horrid coat that she bought in 2007. And this was just like last month. Or something. Yeah. I thought, that's pretty good, isn't it? I think that's quite a cool move. I know Kate has since sort of get, gets all her tops from Zara. But I do think with Princess Anne, it's a genuine sort of, well, you know, if it's still good, why would you throw it out sort of vibe, which yeah. I think is quite cool, you know. Yeah, agreed. It's funny you mentioned The Crown because she, she had a bit of sort of a revival in public opinion, particularly amongst younger girls because of The Crown, yeah. Crown because yeah. they saw her as yeah. really sort of spiky and sexually liberated and those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And I think she's she's probably quite funny, actually. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, as you've probably guessed, not a great royalist, but I sort of, of all of them, I sort of feel like I can tolerate her the best. She does work quite hard and she does sort of have, well, does she? I don't know. But my sense is that she has sort of some moral values where perhaps her brother, Andrew, we know doesn't have any. Yeah. I don't know. I sort of feel like she's a bit more connected. Apparently she doesn't take so many flights. She doesn't do the normal royally thing. 
the most interesting thing to me about Princess Anne is that somebody once tried to kidnap her, and it was it, it was quite a scene. Yes, that's very exciting, isn't it? And it, very cinematic, and yet the Crown didn't use it. And <laughs> I, I was kind of disappointed because you think people wouldn't have believed it or something like that? Oh, that's nonsense. Yeah, they've made that up. And they, they make other things up, don't they? I mean, I actually, to be honest, I haven't watched much of The Crown because I don't know. I sort of just never got into it. And I always think of the Windsors as the crown, as the actual crown. Talking of uh, things that you can and can't say about Princess Anne, before I did this interview, I decided to listen to Joan and Jerrica. And you say some mighty fruity stuff about her on that. You really That wasn't do. me. That wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> that's another, that's the other Vicky Pepperdine, who I hear does an appallingly offensive podcast. <laughs> I have nothing to do with her. <laughs> Can I ask you, is yeah. that all unscripted, Joan and Jerrica? Yeah. I mean, we what we do is we write the letters beforehand, but we don't show them to each other. And then we improvise everything else, literally everything. And quite often we go very off topic and then we'll come back to the letter and we just range around things that make us laugh or just anything that comes to our heads, really. And then we have to edit it quite heavily because we just laugh. Yeah, that was my next a lot. question. Yeah, we 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 do laugh a lot because it's sort of it's just ridiculous, and it's just good fun to be that person that you know says all the things that people say, but sort of not in such an outrageous way. But they do say them all the time, you know, and blame women for things that are ridiculously not their fault, and you know the way that society is towards women and particularly as they get older and yeah it's fun it's a good fun it's a kind of revenge act of revenge i think <laughs> yeah joan <laughs> had, some, had some pretty bright views about uh, prince andrew's accusers <laughs> in that episode yes. well she's had a fling with prince andrew of course joan <laughs> so but who hasn't <laughs> that was genuinely out of the blue amazing that podcast you just decided and then suddenly it, it took off Exactly. It was a sort of mad thing. We just started improvising and recording it and we didn't really know what we were going to do with it. And then podcasts were, there are loads more now than when we were beginning. And to be honest with you, I didn't really, I wasn't hugely aware of the world of podcasts and it certainly wasn't something that I listened to on a regular basis. And then we put them out and I can't remember how it all worked now. But anyway, people were saying, oh, you've got to do some publicity. You must do, you know, otherwise no one will listen to it. But people found it. We decided not to do any publicity at all. And actually then somehow it kind of word of mouth. Some people didn't like it. And then Julia was stopped outside a school by another parent who said, I find this very offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Which which I think is delightful. Um, I mean, there's an easy answer to that, isn't there? I mean, you have to seek a podcast out. It's not even as if you've sat down and you've turned Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And don't tell me you didn't sort of know what you were going to get into. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, anyway, very funny. I should probably admit to something to you now. Go when on. your podcast first started, we were we were in ACAST recording and uh, somebody sent you some muffins, some congratulations on your new podcast muffins. And they sent them to ACAST, which was a, a mad thing to do. And ACAST rang up your agents or whoever and said, we've got these muffins for for Julia and Vicky, what do you want them to do with, with them? And they're, the agent was like, well, actually, neither of them are even at home, so we can't send them. So Standard Issue said, can we help with this problem? Excellent. By just eating the muffins. Excellent. <laughs> they were like, yeah, that solves those problems. Well, there you go. Well, that's all good then. I actually am gluten intolerant. Oh. So you have done me a massive favour. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, staying on Julia Davis, whenever I interview somebody, I always like to go back and watch a comedy series that they've been in. Uh, in fact, reasonably recently, I rewatched uh, The Young Doctor's Notebook because I was talking to Rosie. Oh. I was talking to Rosie Cavaliero. Oh, and, uh, great. So she Love fielded Rosie. all my John Hamm questions. That's such a great series. But this week, I decided to rewatch Camping because it is absolutely glorious. Every single thing you do in that makes me laugh. Oh. I have to say, the scene in which David Bamba pushes his genitals against a car window and you just hit them through the window and say, mm. no, thank you, is, <laughs> is that image is burned into my brain. That was quite, quite something, <laughs> let's say. A distant memory that now, really. It seems so long ago, doesn't it? Yeah. I think sort of, since COVID happened began let's say it feels like i'm in a sort of before and after world where everything before seems like a sort of dream and everything are well after it's not after is it everything since yeah is the sort of new world it's very it's very strange it's a very very funny series and was lovely to film we did it down in um cornwall beautiful sort of coastline and lovely 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 thing to do I'm guessing that was written for you because I can't imagine anybody else. I think so. Although you'd have to check with Julia. <laughs> She's so funny. But again, watching it, I was thinking she does ask a lot. She does ask a lot of her actors. David Bamba, not the only person who gets all his clothes off in that. And Dee Pemberton and you wearing unbelievably tight lycra, which which nobody wants to do, I don't think. Well, you know, showbiz. Showbiz. <laughs> she... <laughs> now, Fiona reminds me very much of another... Again, totally brilliant character that you play, Dr. Pippa Moore, in Getting On, which is absolutely one of my favourite comedies ever. I don't know why your comedies are always on a channel that's like, you're never on the main channel, it seems, where you are with the... No, with the I mean, it's weird, isn't it? I was, Yeah, I mean, basically, with Getting On, which, for listeners who don't know, was a show set in a hospital with Joe Brand, Joe Scannon and myself, and we co-wrote it. And it was for BBC Four, as you know, and then they had a sort of moment where they thought they were going to put it on BBC Two and then somehow the football was on or something. <laughs> it didn't go on there, even though it's multi-award winning, multi-award nominated and hugely critically acclaimed. I think at that point, even then, there was a sort of sense of it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit too female. And it was a ward of old ladies. And I think they kind of thought that the general public, as opposed to the discerning BBC4 educated, whatever they think BBC4 viewers are. Yeah, um, me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> wonderful people. <laughs> that, that, that it wouldn't grab the BBC2 world for whatever reason. And so I think, but I think had it been made now, it almost certainly would have been on BBC1 or BBC2 because, you know, they don't hide shows away now. Mm. Whereas for some reason that kind of went a bit under the radar. But we did three series and then we took it to the States and we exec produced on three seasons there, which was, again, a great a great success. Joe Scannon and I were both invited. Well, in fact, the three of us, but Joe Brand couldn't go. We, Joe Scannon and I went over and played parts in an episode in one of the American shows, which was just fantastic. Mm. So it's, you know, it's an enormous thing in my back catalogue, as it were. But still, some people haven't seen it. So it's kind of a strange thing. So... Yeah, seek it out. I don't know if you can even still get it, but I think it modelly had a bit of a resurgence in the in the pandemic throes of because people were sort of weirdly watching stuff about plagues, yeah, weren't they? and 
and people in hospitals. Do you think it would be made now, given how people feel about the NHS? Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. People, nurses still and doctors still come up to me. I mean, nurses more so, actually, because I think the doctors may feel a little offended by my portrayal of Dr. Pippa Moore, which was not, not in any way a reflection on what I think of doctors, by the way, because I think they're absolutely bloody, well, saviours. But a lot of the nurses, I bump into people and they say, oh, I loved that show. The people mm. even now are still sort of very fond of it, actually, which is really nice. Even though they were extremes, you know, they're comedy characters, yeah. they were extremes. Yeah. They were relatable. You yeah. know, everybody knows a woman who is in her early 40s and is still desperate for a husband and a child, which is where yes, yes. Joe Scanlon was. Totally. And Pippa, she's so... She was so devoid of emotions, and yet I still managed to feel sorry for her a lot of the time. Exactly. Well, we wanted to give her some, you know, we definitely wanted to give her some vulnerability. That's why, you know, we sort of put the divorce story in, and the fact that she was sort of slightly sidelined in many ways in her work, and that she wasn't fully appreciated, I don't think, in the way that she would like to have been, and kept starting up these research things that never really quite caught on. Yeah. They were all sort of horrendous. (laughs) About Poe. Um, about poo and then about urinary infections and you know but it was a a, a real sort of privilege to write that series really we did a lot of research went into hospitals and lots of people very generously gave of their time and we got some um, just you know very sort of tragic and brilliant and life-affirming stories all at once Mm. um, which is what happens in hospitals of course so like we say Pippa and Fiona are very similar very uptight very easily offended Yes. What is it about these characters that are you drawn to them? We wrote Dr. Pippa Moore, so I sort of, you know, that I had a massive hand in mm. making myself that character. I mean, I think I think my sort of observation of a lot of women of a certain age is that they're pushed into sort of corners and they end up, I think rather understandably actually, behaving quite badly. <laughs> because they're not valued in the same way as a man of their age would. They have to sort of do work harder, be better than a man of their own age. And I think it's quite stressful and fraught. And with all the best will in the world, you can't sort of keep being patient and kind. And, you know, when you've got a really high stress job and people aren't necessarily treating you very well, I think it's fun to show the sort of reality of that. And then also, as you said, you feel sorry for her, but at the same time, show this underbelly really of why they're like that or why why any of us might be like that mm. um you know i 100 percent blame the patriarchy for <laughs> almost everything that's not working in my life so you know that's another one i'd like to lay at the door of the patriarchy yeah <laughs> you know i think i actually do genuinely think it's quite hard for women in high level professions or high level posts to be appreciated and what's deemed you know assertive and sort of you know what a what a great guy in a in a man is kind of like oh she's a bit of a battle axe and a bit of bitch and a Mm. bit of a you know is that reflected also in show business oh god fuck i don't know i mean show business i think you know i remember once joe scan and i were being interviewed about getting on fun enough and they and then the interviewer said is it tough for women in comedy and Joe Scanlon gave, I think, the most brilliant answer. She said, well, I think it's tough for women everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this was a while back, you know, before Me Too and before the sort of 
well, you know, attempt to have equal pay and all of that kind of stuff, which is still, as we know, sadly lacking. But it's come on in some areas. But anyway, and I thought, yeah, that's it, isn't it? That maybe showbiz just ref- showbiz, as I like to call it, just reflect the outer world. And, you know, we're all as sort of vulnerable to those vagaries as everyone else in the world, really. You know, yeah. and the fact that even now, and I think people always think you're just bitter and you haven't got enough work when you say this. But I think even now there's still, if you do the numbers, loads more men writing stuff, loads more men with parts on television, loads more men with parts in films. And, you know, I think people go on about, oh, this this is a really great part for a strong, a strong woman. They've written a part for a strong woman, but it's written by a man. You sort of think, well, that's great. But mm. can we also have the women writers so we see the strong woman from a woman's point of view, you know? as well yeah so it's a kind of odd thing I think really and particularly middle-aged women you know there's a lot of women now speaking up about not enough parts women in their 40s in their 50s in their 60s in their 70s and on you know some of our wonderful greatest actors are now in their 80s you know it's yeah 90s you know they're all still doing it but you know the part the parts aren't really there for people from a certain age onwards I, I don't think still even now I don't know what you do about them I mean I'm, I'm you know I just endlessly try and write things and hope that someone will make them mm. I get the impression that comedy is probably harder than drama just because comedy is sort of traditionally seen as a young person's game probably true yeah yeah but actually you know that's what was the surprise about Joan and Jericho for example was that people went mad about it young people you know, people who were friends with my kids mm. were like, oh, my God, that's your mum. I was suddenly like <laughs> a very cool mum, which was, you know, certainly a first. <laughs> <laughs> that's your mum talking about Princess Anne's clitoris. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Don't listen. You have worked with a, like a ludicrous number. I, can't, I, I, was, I started to write a list, but there was just no point. I mean... Oh, comedy legends, really. I mean, obviously, most commonly with Julia Davis, but, you know, Steve Coogan, Dawn French, Jessica Stevenson, Mackenzie Crook, so many people. Is there someone that you're still hoping might ring you? That's a very good question. Funnily enough, the other day I thought, I'm going to write down a list of people I'd really love to work with. And Amy Poehler is somebody who I just think is brilliant. Yeah. And Dan Levy, I watched in lockdown, I watched Schitt's Creek, and I just loved it. And I think... That show was so uplifting and brilliant and wonderful. So I'd love to work with him. I met Will Ferrell once. I think he's a pretty awesome Mm. legend. But there's loads of people. There's loads and loads of really great American stand-ups and comics that I'd love to work with. Loads. So we'll see. You know, you never know. Talking of Americans and talking of, of Amy Poehler, a while ago I discovered that Rob Lowe was making a TV series set in Lincolnshire and I told the others on the podcast and they didn't believe me. They were actually oh, no. like, that's not a thing that would happen. And I was like, seriously, oh. you were in it. I know. It was very cool. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of crazy. I played a really um, sort of almost like a slightly psychopathic police forensic person who was very cool and had a really odd name. I can't remember what it was now. But I basically decided I would play it as a man. <laughs> when I went my audition, I thought, I thought, I bet they've just changed. In this script, it felt like they'd, I don't know, that I've made this up really, but when I read the script, I thought, this feels like a, this all feels like a part for a man. I wonder if they've just thought, oh, Christ, we haven't got enough women. Let's just get in somebody tall. <laughs> <laughs> like at school when I had to be the boy in the dancing. So I thought, why not? I think I'm going to go and audition 
as though I'm a man. And for some <laughs> reason, that seemed to work. So I got the part. You know, that was quite surreal. I mean, I always, it's like working with John Hamm, it's always, it's always very surreal on those first days when you go and arrive and they're kind of like, hey, and you're like, oh, hello there. Um, <laughs> you feel very, very British and sort of tiny. Normally you get into the work and it's absolutely fine, which of course it was, you know, and it's just a sort of normal working day. But yeah. it's just that first few beats where you're like, oh my God, this is very surreal. So last question for you, Vicky. Are you going yes. to be watching the coronation? I'm going to Bruges. Oh, nice. For the weekend. So I may catch it. If they have television shop on with television in the windows like they used to have in this country, in Bruges, I may glimpse it. But maybe they won't show it there because they hate us, don't they? Yeah, everyone hates us now. (laughs) Quite understandably. I'm going to pretend to be French. Uh, My other half (laughs) is Irish. So we shall be going around not being English. Hoping for the best. Yeah, no, I think, I think probably not. I can't, I can't make up my mind because I do loathe the concept of the royal family with with everything that's in me. But on the other hand, it's such an insanely pomp and ridiculousness that it kind of is innately funny. So if I can persuade someone to watch it with me, I yeah, think it yeah. might be quite entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember when Charles and Diana got married and everyone was like, oh my God, again, exciting, going to watch it. And I said to myself, "You, I'm not going to watch that. That's just appalling. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> and then I was on my own in the house and I suddenly cracked and turned it on just really because I did. They'd managed to make such a thing about their dress, hadn't they? That I thought oh, I've just got to see this Emmanuel-designed mm. dress. So I turned it on. She was just walking in at that point with the massive long train behind her. I watched that and then I turned it off again. And then I didn't tell anyone, pretended I hadn't watched it. <laughs> see, I didn't have any choice. <laughs> My nan had a barbecue and uh, we had oh. to go. She said that we had to wear dresses. And uh, oh, my nan was Irish and she had that weird thing that some Irish people do where they come over here and then become obsessed with the monarchy i, I don't know i know why. it's so strange isn't it yeah, yeah. and yeah. she i can remember her taking photographs of it on the telly us standing right. next to the telly and her Aww. taking pictures of the of the royal, us at the royal wedding which is yeah yeah i mean it is a piece of history i suppose so in some ways it feels a bit churlish and i don't know i didn't go to my graduation at university and i really? always thought no i sort of thought i was t- you know we were a bit too cool for that then I years later I thought, God, my parents were probably gutted. Mm. And I was like, I'm not going to that. I'm not wearing a fucking gown and <laughs> all those stupid hats. I get that. I, I mean, I didn't even but, graduate, yeah. so your parents got, oh, okay. got one up on my even, parents. That's even that's even cooler. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I get it. We were actually talking the other day on the podcast about Catherine Hepburn and how she won four Oscars and didn't bother to turn up to pick any of them up. Fucking great! Isn't that Absolutely. the coolest thing in the world? That's super cool. Yeah. yeah. Good for her. Well, regardless of whether people watch the actual coronation, they should certainly watch the coronation special. Yes, I've watched it and I think it is genuinely really funny. So I would I would say, if you want a bit of a laugh, turn it on. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Vicky. It's been an absolute pleasure. Our pleasure, Hannah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Kelly Gordon, executive lead for the Netball Her campaign at England Netball. Kelly, hello. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a very exciting campaign. Mm. And I wondered if you could start off by telling us all a little bit more about it, please. 
so the adventure strategy launched or the England Apple Adventure Strategy launched two years ago now. And part of the development of the strategy was to look at how we support women and girls at all life stages. And by that we've called we're a game for life. So a game that anyone could be in from five to ninety-five. And as we were going through that process, we were really starting to look at well, what does that actually mean and how how do you be in a sport for life and what we've always had programs we've always sort of supported clubs and leagues to be able to be there for girls and women at every life stage we've got back to netball we've got walking netball we've got be netball for the youngsters we've got clubs and leagues but actually what we realized which is a bit bit of an eye-opener for us is that we actually don't do anything to support women and girls sort of off the court so we don't almost recognize their life if, if you know what I mean so what we what we really then looked into is where are the sort of the dropout points, the key sort of drain points um, in women and girls' lives when they may potentially either stop playing netball or leave netball completely. So when we started sort of going down that route, we identified some really sort of stark facts, if you like. So one one being forty one percent of teenage girls step back or drop out of playing netball completely, and sort of the two reasons cited for that are lack of body confidence, which is common and um, teenage girls, and also period symptoms. So that's either because they don't want to talk about the fact they're on their periods, or some have quite heavy heavy periods. And obviously, it's all new to teenage girls, and it's all a big a big life change. So so that was a really big one for us. And and again, we don't do anything specifically around supporting teenage girls in terms of their where they're at with their bodies. Another big one for girls, teenage girls, well, in fact, all women, is sports bras. Mm-hmm. We keep on hearing these stories about women doubling up and doubling up on sports bras, not getting ever getting bra fitted. The M&S, you know, we've all been there with M&S and go for your bra fitting. And, you know, just generally, girls and women don't actually wear sports bras. And there's not very, very limited education around sports bras. So that that's that was a big piece around teenage girls as, as well. The other sort of big stat for us that really made us look hard at this was pregnancy. So 20% of women who've played netball and, and stopped playing due to pregnancy never actually return to the game. So it's not as if they stop and then come back. 20% of them don't actually come back. So again, you know, what we do to support women, we're, we're, we're unapologetic female sports. Why aren't we supporting these women, you know, when, when they've left and to support when they come back? So there were some big, big stats. And there's more, many more like that. But there were some big stats that we just thought, actually, we've got to do something about this. So that was the, that was the start of it. So the idea yeah. is that, that sport obviously is for life and ideally we want women to pursue active lifestyles across their whole lives. I think yeah. that you get to a point, you know, if you've, if you've not chosen to do that, where you start to think, well, you know, maybe I'm a bit past it. Why is it important for women, specifically women sort of over the age of 40, to maintain yeah. an active lifestyle? There's two parts that I think in the research tells us. One is just keeping the body moving and particularly with netball it's a really good combination of aerobics so keeping your heart going and moving around and moving all your body around but also sort of light strength work as well so you know using your legs using your arms you know if you do warm-ups they tend to do different exercises so it's not going to the gym not pumping not pumping iron but it's overall keeping your body active and then you know, post 40, 45, perimenopausal, menopausal, you know, all the research says the best thing to do, even though you might not want to do it, mm-hmm. the best thing to do is is be active. So that's that's one big part is just keeping your body healthy, keeping your body fit. The other side, and it also helps with perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms as well, being being active. The other side is just that sense of belonging within a within a female sport. And since we launched Netball Her, we've had such amazing stories coming through of women going through the menopause, 
and just not having either somebody at home to talk to, didn't know how to talk to the doctor about it, um, didn't know how to talk to friends about it, because it's just still quite a taboo. I mean, mm. it's not more talked about now, but it's still quite a taboo subject for, you know, for some. So we've heard brilliant stories of, I go to netball and the women just talk and they just, you know, have a little natter before they start. Or now we're doing much more around helping the coaches understand this so they can sort of put breaks into sessions so women can start talking about what's going on with their bodies and actually saying it's okay to talk about leakage and it's okay to say, do you want to go to the toilet or, you know, I'm getting a bit hot in here, you know, can we open the windows type of thing. So all of that stuff is really, really important. So it's not just doing the physical activity of sport, which has got its benefits, but it's actually having, allowing those conversations to happen. And that was really important to us as a sport that we're seeing to create that sense of, that sense of belonging for women to be part of an unapologetic focus on females with you know we're quite unique in that way aren't we and that we're a Mm. we are a female only sport i read a horrifying stat last week that by age 14 only 10 percent of girls are meeting physical activity health standards so there are lots of reasons for this some of which you've you've touched on already some of the big Mm. ones are obviously that they become self-conscious about their bodies and this is the point at which they drop out I was definitely mm. that kid at school myself. Yeah. I, I wasn't interested in PE at all, but I came mm. back to exercise in my late twenties. And I know, you know, there's other people like me who exist. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I had a baby when I was thirty, almost thirty-seven, and I've been less active since then over the last few years, just because, like, the time, you know, like finding yeah. the time to do it is mm-hmm. is tough. So, the, like, the reality is, even if you had kept sport up beyond the age of 14 there are barriers at all stages of a woman's life so what do the numbers look like she says sort of like with a bit of trepidation what do the numbers look like in those sort of upper age brackets in terms of meeting the required standards I'm not sure what the numbers are in terms of meeting the required standards but for netball and in terms of that difference across life stages 69% of women take a break from playing netball across their lives so as you've absolutely said there's key reasons for that across life stages so 69 percent is a big number isn't it you know you're not going to start playing netball at five and then never ever stop playing netball or that you know the the stats are that you 69 percent of people don't do that but a lot of those as you say life's just busy generally that is the number one reason why did you drop out of sport generally but why did you drop out of playing netball because life's busy but actually when you really dig into it it is a key life stages around female health so we mentioned before around periods so Mm. big one for teenage girls is Body conscious, absolutely, and the This Girl Can campaign, the Sport England campaigns really tried to sort of break down those barriers. Um, women in sport have done a lot of work, as you have you Sport Trust, around trying to understand those barriers to teenage girls. But actually, from a female health perspective, just the change in their bodies, the fact we said before, the fact they've got their periods, the fact they've started developing breasts and they don't really know whether to wear a sports bar or what to do, and they just feel a bit uncomfortable in themselves. So that's that big, that you said before, you know, that all of that wrapped together, no wonder girls sort of stop playing sports if they haven't got the support and I think you know that's it that's one that's that's a big thing that we want to do is give them that education so there's that one and then then you move you know like you said you go into pregnancy and then there's all around when can I when if you're playing that but when do I stop playing you know what 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 does that mean for my body what might what do I know about my body it's just again an education point of what's my body capable of doing and when is it safe you know when is it safe to stop and that sort of thing and then similarly returning so when should I return when is it healthy for me to return? And then obviously you've got to sort out childcare and all the other things around it. 
and then you move into into further into life and you've got menopause and we, you know we talked about that and a lot of women do drop out of sport around menopause because they just feel uncomfortable themselves they don't know how to talk about it they you know m- mentally maybe they're not they're not in a great place either so so that 69 percent is no no wonder really and that mm. we keep on getting these and, and across all of that you've got menstrual cycle and you've got the fact that you know women across life stages have periods and some have really bad period pains and endometriosis so there's all of these things at play that we as a sports system need to support women and girls to break those to break those barriers down so we don't get women and girls so frequently leaving sports or when they leave sport we're there to support them and that's the, you know, the big thing that I say is that even when they're not playing netball we should still be there to support them to welcome them back when they're ready to come back. I don't I don't know for a fact, but this is just an assumption. I assume that there's a bit of a class divide on this as well, because obviously it costs yeah. money to join a netball team, like pay your yeah. subs or whatever. The kit costs money. Sports bras are like, if you want to get a good yeah. one, phenomenally expensive, you know, like 50 quid or something like that. That's it's a lot of money. Yeah, there are some really good, cheaper versions now. So so we, as part of Netball Her, we've developed a web, website, netballher.co.uk. And on the website, there's some brilliant top tips on bra fittings, where to go to buy cheaper bras. Um, because we've, we've definitely had that feedback that you can, you can get, as with everything, you can go to the extreme of going to get mm. a custom-made bra. But actually, lots of Spencers do good bras and even lower down brands do good, safe bras. I think it's um, Primark. Dr. Emma Roth, who's one of the um, founders of the Well HQ, mm-hmm. um, said that Primark do sports bras and they're fine, you know. And actually, if you do, if you measure yourself, and on the website, there's lots of, um, there's actually a video on there that shows you how to measure yourself. So if you've measured yourself and you go and get the right bra, then that'll do this, you know, that'll give you the support that you need. So there are ways, there are ways you can get the right bra fitting but to go to your point around sort of social social class barriers yes there are and sport generally can be perceived as being expensive you know you've either got your club fees or you've got program fees at netball we do a lot of work with different community groups that reach different audiences so based in the community and um, no charge um, or where there is a charge it's very very minimal so we align with partners that actually are in those in those communities and we deliver netball through those partners so people living in that community can actually access netball either for free or, or, or at a very minimal cost they haven't got to travel there and, and all that sort of thing and a lot of sports take that approach as well so it's taken the sport to those audiences but in terms of female health there's a very little research around the differences between female health barriers across different ethnic minority groups for example we know that depending on your social class you you may have different barriers in terms of in terms of your female health and how and the challenges that you face and we know that in terms of the minority group your female health will differ compared to a white woman's female health and so there's some facts that we know and some of those facts from the on the netball her website but in the industry has got very little research in that in that space so it's all been very much research by men for men mm. so actually there's on, on the whole very little <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah on the mm. whole very little research on female health in mm. comparison to the sports system was developed by men for men mm-hmm. so therefore the whole of the sports system isn't de- isn't developed for women which is the bit that we're trying to change and therefore there's even less research on the, almost the differences within women we know that we, we that's one of the areas that we really want to push hard on is really trying to understand these differences between women so our first thing is let's try and change the system for women but let's not treat all women the same yeah and um, because all women aren't the same one of the things that i come back to all the time in terms of women's access to physical fitness sport etc etc is there used to be a thing that the government did because i used to be a civil servant and i worked in uh, fuel poverty policy and i remember there was a time when we were looking at whether or not 
fuel poverty should be listed as a health inequality, right? Because of the the huge impacts that it has on yeah. a person's or can have yeah. on a person's physical health. And I yeah. have been wondering for years and years and years, why is this not listed as yeah. a health inequality? Because it is. It's undeniably it is. a health inequality. Yeah, the absolutely. barriers that women face yeah. to physical fitness are there at, as we've discussed, different crunch points yeah. across a woman's life. Yeah. Why is this... Yeah still not because this is serious it, it, it's bonkers you know. isn't it <laughs> yeah it's I mean, even even more so that it's still a taboo to talk about it mm. so, you know to talk to talk about it I mean I'm saying that there's me saying it now you know to talk about periods to talk about breasts to talk about pelvic floor menopause it's actually just a little bit awkward still to talk about mm. it so it's not only the fact that the that the inequalities are there and that it almost that it's the, the system change it's actually that we need to start talking about it so there's policy change that's got to happen we, there's policy change within sport that's got that's got to happen so the, the approach we're taking is to change our whole of our system so it's to look at everything we're doing from the programs right the way through to the elite games we're doing a lot of work with the elite athletes as well because there's a- absolute things there but a lot of sports are sort of just looking at the, the top bit so they'll do change of kit and we've seen obviously football football have been talking a lot around the change of short colours. Uh, Wimbledon have talked about, you know, the whites and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's there's pockets of change happening and that's where the, you know, but collectively as a sports system, we've got to push for that policy change because as much as we're doing it as a sport, which is absolutely right for our sport and what we should be doing, of course the power is going to come when we collectively go, we need to change the system, we need to change policy to recognise these barriers for mm. women and it should be talked about, it shouldn't be in our society now it shouldn't be taboo to talk about periods and talk about all the other things i mean i talk about women's sport week in mm. week out on the podcast and have done for you know a good few years now and mm. i see that it is becoming a more kind of like fashionable topic to talk about which is great and absolutely fantastic but i see things like the change to the england kit for example and i kind of think like well you know that's all positive stuff but i remain like quite cynical about it I, I could ask you what's you know what's the answer but I, I basically I would be asking you what is the answer to systemic misogyny yeah it's a bit above your pay grade isn't it frankly yeah, exactly I mean I'd like to be able to change the whole of it but what we can control is changing our system or we can put things in place to help support the change of the system so so there's sort of three parts to it for netball her one is the website that I've talked about and and on there it covers the key female health topics so pelvic floor breasts and bras and kit menstrual cycle injury and it also covers all key life stages as well it's very grazia level information so it's very you know go in there's lots of videos it's 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 medical and written by medics and mm-hmm. um, so it's absolutely sound information but it's not written in a way that medical if you know what i mean it's easy to it's take accessible. away and easy to understand and it's accessible thank you that's the word there's downloadable infographics and and all that sort of thing and it's brought to life by netballers and their stories and that's what makes it really real as well you know it's there's women on there talking about their struggles with menopause and how netballs help them you know to your point before around what the benefits of, of the sport there's a, a young girl on there talk about periods and how hard it how hard it is for her to manage her training around having heavy periods and, and period pains so lots, lots of lovely stuff on there so that is in terms of what we can do in changing our system that's for the netballer and actually for anyone else in the industry and we've purposely said that go onto the website take what you want watch what you want um, and hopefully it'll help educate and help start changing this language the other key part for us 
which is going to be the system more more hopefully the system change is educating those that are supporting her so the coaches the parents the administration of the game to actually help as i said before at the coaching session help the fact that women want to stop and have a little chat about you know going through the menopause or the fact that it's okay for a girl to run out and go and go to the toilet and it, and then when she comes back she'll get back on the court again and have a court short kit in your bag so if someone hasn't got any tampons with them they can go in the bag and get some and not be embarrassed but asking all of those things we need to put in place and that that's what will change the system because then it becomes normalized it becomes you know part of our sport so that that second bit around education we're developing bespoke female health learning for all of our all of our coaches for free it'll be online learning so they can go in there and it'll be based on all like all key life stages in the female health topics and it'll be very consumable so they go in there and do it in sort of 10 minute chunks so it's not sit down for three hours and go through a module it's go in take it and it's all very built around how you apply it to netball in your netball environment and then the third part in terms of systematic change is our organisation ourselves we're looking at how do we change England netball how do we support our staff in in terms of events what sort of stuff needs to be put in place how do we make sure that managers are okay to have you're comfortable to have conversations with if they have someone that comes to them and says I'm really struggling I think I'm going through a menopause or actually every month have really heavy periods that it's okay to have those conversations so no we can't change the whole of the system single-handedly but we can do something to change our system I think go back to your point around the shorts that's that's great and that will do it that'll serve its purpose as well it's been talked about which is really important Mm -hmm. but we need to do something the campaign website is netballher.co.uk and there's a range of resources on there if you want to access them finally because another important strand of this is media coverage and you know if you can't see it you can't be it that's it so where can we next see the england netball team in action so the Super League season has started. So the Super League teams all over the country. So if you um, want to go watch live netball, then go onto the the Netball Super League website, and there's lots of information on there around where where your local games are, where we where you've got sort of big events to go to. But the big, big, big one coming up is the World Cup, the, the Vitality Netball World Cup in Cape Town, South Africa. Mm-hmm. So that's from the 28th of July to the 6th of August, and it'll be across all TV channels. So you'll be able to. Well, I say I say all the TV channels, but it'll be the key TV channels, mm-hmm. so you can tune in and, and take a look. In terms of the players and netball, her we've done a lot of work with the with the roses of our national teams called the roses with the athletes, and we've really got a massive amount of support from the roses. And I think because it resonates with them, you know, they they have all got their own stories, and mm-hmm. you know, and they want to be able to help those that come in, not just coming through the system, but those that are playing the sport. So you'll probably as you tune into the World Cup you'll probably see more of them talking about about that and Neville Hill will be a, a, a key theme of the uh, campaign leading up to the World Cup. Brilliant where can we follow the campaign have you got like social media channels that we can follow so, you on? Yeah follow England Netball so we do Netball Thursday so every Thursday we do across social channels and um, it's quite a lot on Twitter on lots of um, sort of bite-sized information on on Netball Her and how to, and key insights into female health so Twitter um, we're on Instagram, so we did an Instagram live last week. So we're going to be doing more Instagram lives, and we're also on the on the others as well, Facebook and and LinkedIn. So we're across all the channels, but the main areas we're focused on is Twitter and Instagram. Hashtag Netball Her, mm-hmm. but it's going through the England Netball social channels. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which extended Grolsch advert did we watch this week? <laughs> right. Whoa. This week we watched 1998's Sliding Doors, written and directed by Peter Howitt, who also brought us such classics as Antitrust and Johnny English. And was also Joey in Bread. Is that the same Peter Howitt? I was just thinking was that <laughs> was Joey he? from Bread. How did we miss this? He'll be right at home. <laughs> the weird thing about this film is that I knew almost nothing about it, but I knew that Joey from Bread had written it. Oh, this explains so much. Presumably, his budget just came from putting a massive pot chicken on the kitchen table, <laughs> seeing how much money he could collect. So this film is pitched as a romantic comedy drama, though to be brutally honest, you know, up front, I have had funnier and probably more dramatic shits. The film stars Gwyneth Paltrow as the lead, Helen, fresh from her turn in Emma and presumably where she honed her English accent. Which is terrible. It's so bad. She's joined by Eric Cantona slash John Lynch as <laughs> dirtbag boyfriend Jerry and John Hanna as alternative tube pest boyfriend James. Jean Triplehorn plays terrible human Lydia. Let's have a look at the plot, shall we? No. Oh, sorry. We have to. Helen is a snivelling charisma vacuum who works in PR and gets fired from her job on pretty tenuous grounds, to be honest, and responds in a way that would frankly make me sexist. Off she pops to the tube where she just misses it, or does she? The film goes on to show us two alternate versions of Helen's life depending on whether or not she had caught that tube. One in which she's sexually harassed by a stranger on public transport who she ultimately winds up in a relationship with, living her best life, getting a haircut and starting her own business. Jamiroquai and shoes. <laughs> that is before ultimately being <laughs> mowed down by a white van driver, killing her and her unborn child. Hurrah! That's what I want to happen to me if Jamiroquai and shoes. <laughs> I hate him so much. I, I have an affection for a couple of their songs, not that one. Anyway, the other in which he gets mugged while hailing a taxi instead of waiting another two minutes for the tube. I don't know, maybe she was waiting for a circle line via Liverpool Street, in which case, fair play, I understand. In this alternate version of the world, she doesn't catch philandering boyfriend Jerry in the act with his ex, continues to financially support him with no reward, working as a waitress while he cocks around, not writing a book ultimately gets tricked into discovering the affair anyway, falling down the stairs and winding up in a coma that kills her unborn child, but recovering herself in order to dump Jerry and bump into James in the lift at the hospital. The moral of the story is all roads lead to sexual harassment in public spaces. (laughs) Fantastic. The lesson of the story is never let yourself be without a man for a single second of your life. Just jump from one to the other like they're like stepping stones on the path to ultimate misery. I don't want to go in too hard on Gwynny or my GCSE drama teacher, Mrs Bolton, who said that her English accent was, and I quote, impeccable. But this film made me want to watch... Yeah, it's not plausible. It's so shit. Like, it's so wooden and, like, Especially when she's shouting. She's so aggressive sounding like yeah i feel like she learned how to say etc in a passable english accent and so they just kept putting that word into all of her speeches <laughs> go on say etc again it makes you sound authentic <laughs> anyway it made me want to watch seven again to get to the bottom of how she was actually able to forge a career off the back of this film because i was just like 
where where did it come from? Anyway, it made $67 million from a budget of $6 million, with the rest of the world doing a fair bit of heavy lifting here, as it took about $12 million in the US. However, it became the highest grossing British film of the year because we were, I don't know, grateful? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Critics didn't love it. Roger Ebert didn't love it. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't love it. Which does kind of beg the question, why was it such a big deal here? Because I do remember, like, it was a really big film. Yeah, I remember it being a really big film as well. I think it's the concept, because I think the expression sliding doors... I mean, it gets used a lot. So I think it was actually the idea of of it that got, you know, this morning and things like that yeah. talking about, oh, what, what, what do you think? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We'll come back to that. I mean, like... I don't want to peek too soon here again, but like I've been spending quite a lot of time recently listening to the charlatans again and thinking about the halcyon days of the 90s, right? Oh man, I love the charlatans. Same. Me too. D-Ream, Cool Britannia, etc. Et and this <laughs> film right, makes me think that I must have fundamentally misremembered them. Like It must have been much shitter than I remember. Lads, had you watched this film before? And did you like it then? Because I feel very confident that you didn't like it this time round. Can I just say, objectively, this film made 1998 look shit. And 1998 is objectively one of the best years that there's been that I've been alive. What happened to you in 98? That's not what happened to me in 98. It's just 98 was was all, you know what I mean? It was, it was all, all hope, right. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There, was it, yeah there was like, that Labour were in, the Good Friday Agreement had happened. Yeah. It's like, Everyone was just having a nice time. So are you suggesting and... that this film is karma for all of no, I'm suggesting. <laughs> I'm suggesting how crap this film is. You know, those happy pre-September the 11th days that we had, the pre-Iraq war, that little glory bit we had yeah. after the election of Blair till, like, September the 11th. Depends what timeline you're on, Hannah. Just stinking it up. Yeah. Quite, quite. Anyway, did did you like it? No, me. Jen, I hadn't seen it before. I felt like I'd seen bits of it before because it is pop culture-ish, yes. So, but no, I absolutely fucking hated it. I thought it was awful. <laughs> I hadn't seen it before and also absolutely fucking hated it and thought it was awful and was laughing just two minutes ago, Jen, when you went, to, you know, at the risk of not keeping my powder dry. I mean, I think we went in, all of us, with our powder <laughs> fully wet on this one. Oh, it's so bad. So bad. I also, one of my favourite bits of bad, because you're like, this is terrible. How can they make it worse? Are the several references to the fact that, thank God, she's on a diet. I've seen carrots mm. with more fat on them. <laughs> exactly. Her chest is terrifying. It's just, it's yeah. It's terrifyingly thin. They yeah. keep talking about her being on a diet. And I'm like, oh, the Where 90s are her eyebrows? hated women. Where are her yeah. eyebrows? Yeah, she's really solid 90s brows there isn't it hopefully in timeline c having a nicer time i don't know the thing is i don't care every time something dramatic happened i said to the television i still don't care i just don't (laughs) care i don't think it's aimed at a british audience i think it's aimed at an american audience because it has loads of american references in Mm. it she makes a reference to jeopardy which we would never make but we're smart enough to know what it means yeah and also he makes a reference to Seinfeld. And although people here did watch Seinfeld, not that guy. That guy did not watch Seinfeld. He would have said, only fools and horses yeah. or something. Yeah. So, But they wouldn't know what that was. So I think it is pitched at the American audience. But, it didn't sorry, work. Because yeah. they weren't that fussed about it. One of the main problems with it, I think, is that she is such an unlikable protagonist. 
obviously she's not meant to be unlikable. That's not the point. So is she one of the most unlikable, meant to be likable protagonists in cinematic history? Oh, oh I don't know. That's quite a, a wide question. field. That's a big question, yeah. isn't it? She is definitely unlikable because she is both an odd mix of, I think I'm clever, spiky, that just comes across as a bit lame, but also woefully naive. So she's contradictory. She, her character is entirely built on what the plot needs her to be at that specific mm. moment. She certainly took a shit on my Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she's meant to be like, you know, sort of the late 90s kind of like, yeah, she's a woman about town doing her thing. Mm, yeah. yeah, she's pure meant to be a, some sort of ladette, I think would be the term, because she's like, I'm going to go and get off my head on Grolsch. No one I have ever met has ever said, who gets drunk on Grolsch? Try something better. Exactly. <laughs> but I think this film probably also got quite a lot of its budget from product placement. Grosh, yeah, because, totally. Because Grosh, but also NatWest local, like, small business service gets a massive plug in this as well. Yeah, she's supposed to be a cool girl kind of character. You know, I think we're supposed to think she's got balls with the way she talks to people after she's just been fired. I mean, she has Nixon vodka. Like, when she's like, why yes. didn't you just tell them we'd run out? And you're like, well, don't take work property, I guess. Yeah. And if you get busted, you get busted. Also, I'd be quite concerned about having an employee that just like drank three bottles of vodka. <laughs> That's quite a lot of it's vodka. It's a shit to put agency away. if they're offering yeah. the client Smirnoff in honesty, Jen. Obviously, they put some yeah. into the to the chicken on the kitchen table as well, though. I think. <laughs> so yeah, I think she's supposed to be almost aspirational. She's like, this doesn't take any shit, except she takes shit from the men in her life. Yeah, go getter who's doing really well. She's the only woman in that room, and she's like, oh, I'm choking on the testosterone. I think we're supposed to think Helen's great. I hated her so much. Actually, I didn't hate her because she was too dull for me to have that much of an Does emotion it? She's about. Dull, like her personality is that. She's a 90s woman. That's her personality. Like, there's yeah. nothing else to her. There's literally, like, she doesn't have one. It's Oh, come on, Jen. It's... She has a haircut. Right, good point. Good point. She has a haircut. Yeah, that's her personality, isn't it? Ooh. Feisty woman, short hair. Um... One of the worst things about this film is that I can cope with films that are supposed to be funny but aren't funny. But what I really can't cope with are films that are supposed to be funny and are unfunny. Mm. And this has got really obvious jokes in it that are all delivered as jokes. Mm. The dialogue just fucking stinks. Absolutely stinks. I mean, the, the, the faux sort of bonhomie of them all sitting around at him quoting Monty Python. Like Monty Python. Yeah. It made me feel sick. I was like, oh, these are supposed to be your best friends. I can't imagine a friend of mine having a bit that they got out really regularly and did, and we all sat around pissing ourselves laughing. And the performances aren't great. I think it's really badly acted. Across the board, I think the performances are really bad. And I really like John Hanna as an actor, actually. Mm. I I think he's very warm, very charismatic. He's in one of the best episodes, or two of the best episodes of Carnival that are really creepy. He's amazing in it. But... Yeah, he's just, he is also a personality vacuum in this, apart from being a secret arsehole. Like, a secret arsehole, and also like someone who harasses women in public spaces. (laughs) Like, what the fuck is that? Is it literally just like it was a different time in the 90s? Like, would that have been acceptable? I don't know. I think some people still think it should be acceptable. 
I don't just think it's a different time in the 90s. It's been written by a man who's like, heyday was the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, it's really that idea that it's charming to just dazzle women on the street. It's very, that's sort of the the Richard Curtis sort of style of thinking Mm. about stuff is on display here, which in itself is is really 90s. Oh, my God, Hannah, you've just hit the nail on the head. John Hannah's character would totally turn up with handwritten signs in a ghetto blaster. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it tries to be Bridget Jones a little bit as well in parts, like they're going off for a a weekend to Dorset. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen so much excitement about a weekend to Dorset in my life, except maybe from pensioners. (laughs) No offence to Dorset. It's lovely. Jurassic Coast, it's beautiful. it, It is lovely, but they made it sound like it was like... Do you know what I mean? Like go to New York for the weekend. Oh, everyone's just so insufferably posh as well, aren't they? Mm. Apart from his chipper mate. Oh, like Russell, Russell's my favourite yeah. character because he's yeah, just... Russell he's, is definitely the viewer, I think. He's the Greek <laughs> chorus, is what I was going to say. He's definitely us just going, what, what? He, you're a dick. You deserve everything that's coming to you. I can't believe yeah. that you're getting away with this. Like Jerry yeah. is the most inept affair haver ever. And also, what do either of these women see in him? Because he's just terrible. Why doesn't he just get a fucking job? Because he's, he's a dick. Feckless yeah. twat, isn't he? Who just is being, like, he's living off a free lunch from his stupid girlfriend. Like, you know, why not, frankly? He's very <laughs> fertile, though. He's got that going for him, eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, she's very fertile because she gets knocked up by both of them, doesn't she? she? I've enjoyed very much that there's been a lot of sentences that have started the worst thing about this film is because <laughs> there's so much to choose from. And also, why? <laughs> yeah. But John Hannah's character, James, we are supposed to think mm. he is fucking knight in shining armour. And he is an arsehole who lies about or doesn't reveal that he is married. In that last bit of timeline where they bump into each other in the lift, he'd have been with his wife. Yeah. Sorry, I just yeah. I just had to start laughing because I, I turned over my note and I turned over my notebook and I've seen a note and I just, I've just written down like the, the acting in this is so bad, the setups of this are so bad, and they feel the need to tell you everything and like keep it really tight. There's a bit where you see him coming out of a hospital room and he goes, "Yeah, ta-da, mum," yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's so ridiculous. But I wanted to talk about like her deaths, the one where she does die and the one where she doesn't die. Like, she gets hit by a van and dies of beautiful internal injuries. Like, just not a mark on her. Yeah. Just looks like Gwyneth Paltrow. It's all internal injuries, right? And in the second one, she wakes up and she's she's been really ill, you know, and she might die, but she doesn't die. And I'd just like to point out that in both of those situations, nobody rings her mum or her best friend. Both of these men are arseholes. Hmm. Both of them just sit, just holding her hand. Jonah Hannah's allowed to watch the operation. <laughs> Where does that happen? Just peering through the window <laughs> into the That's operation. what I was thinking. They don't usually let you do no. that, do they? Like, I, I imagine for your own sake as much as uh, anyone else. I'd has, have rather but... watched an operation yeah. on Gwyneth Paltrow than this film. <laughs> <laughs> as you said earlier, Hannah, it has sort of taken on some kind of cultural significance, hasn't yeah. it? Because of the concept of sliding doors moments that people now talk about. But surely this concept has like always existed and really what we're talking about is just fate. Multiverses and fate. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. I'm surprised Yosra didn't pick this yeah, up somewhere really... along the line. <laughs> Yosra would love this shit. I mean, what I will say about the, the film, because you said I only said what I hate, what it does brilliantly is 
you know, it makes the London Underground look amazing. I would love to commute <laughs> if that's what commuting was like. It looks incredible. There was no drunk people falling over at the bottom of the stairs. There was no, you know, there was no running to jump on the train and actually not being able to fit on it, which is what actually more accurately would happen in this film. Yeah. Not that the doors would shut, but there she go now, fuck it, I'll wait for the next one. But apropos of your question about sliding doors, Jen, I found a story. So the Daily Mail, so forgive me for reading it out, and it is the weirdest story that's ever existed in the whole of the world. Let me read some of it out to you. (laughs) Headline, Gwyneth Paltrow saved my life on 9-11. Woman recalls her very own sliding doors moment, right? I shouldn't be laughing because it's about September the 11th, so I apologise in advance, right? And this is written in 2011 in the Daily Mail. And it's about this woman who was on her way to work, to commute to work. And she steps out in front of a car and the car like stops and papes. And she's like, oh shit, sorry. And walks in the road and uh, she steps back. And then she notices that the person driving the car is Gwyneth Paltrow, right? And she's and Gwyneth Paltrow says, no, go on. And she goes, no, it's fine. And Gwyneth Paltrow says, no, go on. And this goes on for a bit. And because of this, she misses long? her train, right? The old sliding doors close and she has to get the next train to work. And because of that, she isn't, this woman claims, in the Twin Towers when the plane's hit. Wow. Wowzers. I mean, if How they... much of that story do you believe? I don't know. Like, none of it. But I enjoyed exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> But and also, if you meet Gwyneth Paltrow on a on a ski slope, she's less gracious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> There's a full like almost a minute of just sliding doors at one point. Like they're just like doors opening and shutting, opening and shutting, ramming home that imagery. But there's like three sets in a row and they're all going at different speeds. I'm like, oh, it's, it's imagery for the whole film. What's the thing in uh, in the League of Gentlemen, Legs Akimbo Theatre Company, <laughs> when they go to London? Beautiful times. I read an article while I was writing this bit about how, this is from a few years ago, for Stylist, about how sliding doors is as relevant now as, as, as it <laughs> was like, like 21 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I agree, weirdly, but yeah. Because... That is literally life, isn't it? It's a series of fucking, like, cause and effect, isn't it? Just stuff happens or doesn't happen and you make a choice and you might make the wrong one and different things will happen as a result of that. It's quite a basic concept, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I usually do a lot of reading round about whichever film we've watched so that I can, you know, maybe throw in a fun fact. No, fuck it. I'm like, I'm not doing any research on this film. (laughs) It's not worth any more of my time. I was curious... (laughs) How many reviews ultimately concluded, you know, what they'd rather be watching in a different timeline? When you have a concept <laughs> like this, you do set yourself up for yeah. some really easy criticisms. The last three you picked of this, we've had, yeah, quite the time. Do you want to do, like, on a scale of one to ten, how much you hated it rather than rated or dated? I don't know. How, how, rated or dated? Dated. I mean, absolutely dated, yeah. Free for free. Lovely stuff. <laughs> Who's picking something better next me, week? Me, me. And I already know that I love this film, so it is a bit of a cheat going in. It's definitely one of my favourites. I've seen it a lot. We are going to be watching 2003's A Mighty Wind. Well, <laughs> which will make more sense to you once you've watched it, Jen. <laughs> And on timeline B, we're going to be watching (laughs) (laughs) 
Standard Issue for All Women.